Good morning. Happy Father's Day. This is the Lord's Day, so every Lord's Day is Father's Day. Amen. Okay. Uh, so let's let's open with prayer. Father, I do thank you for the privilege to open your word once again. Father, I thank you for the privilege to be found in your house, for the privilege to be gathered with people of like-minded faith, for the privilege of being in your presence. Uh, Lord, I just pray that you would bless this message. Uh, you have chosen the foolish things to shame the wise, and there is probably none more foolish than the one standing here going to give it. So I pray that you would bless your word, uh, that it would bring forth fruit uh, to repentance and to your glory. In Christ's name, amen. Uh, so this morning, I hope you all brought a snack because this is about a six-hour sermon. Uh, actually, I'm going to try to condense a six-hour sermon down into 41 minutes. Um, but we shall see doesn't really matter because the Holy Spirit attending uh, the Word can accomplish more in your hearts in three seconds than I can do in three lifetimes. Uh, anyway, we've been hinting at this message for several weeks during Sunday school, and the fact that according to Jesus Christ and according to the entirety of Scripture, there are more lost people in what calls itself the church than there are saved people. I'm going to justify that fully. Uh, I know this goes against everything that you have ever been taught. We have all been indoctrinated by watered-down preaching to believe that as long as a person makes a profession of faith, then he's good to go. Uh, John MacArthur says, you know what your profession of faith is worth? Absolutely nothing. It's just words. Even the devil would stand up here and make a profession of faith, Okay. So, the favorite word in the church today is legalism. Uh, we'll be looking at a lot of scriptures this morning simply because the word is the only truth to be found. You will not be accountable for any words that I might speak this morning. I'm not a pastor. I'm not an elder. You're not accountable for any words I have to say. But when I read to you the scripture, guess what you are accountable for? The scripture. Um, so, let's get started. Starting with 2 Corinthians chapter 13 and verse 5, uh, we're going to be spending most of our time in the Gospel of Matthew, uh, beginning with chapter 4, and then we're going to work through it. Uh, if I did the whole thing, it would be a six-hour sermon, but we're going to just try to hit the high spots. 2 Corinthians 13:5, Paul says, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves, or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail to meet the test? I hope that you will find out that we have not failed the test. Examine yourselves. I'm well aware that this is a lost doctrine in modern cultural Christianity. Uh, you know, the one that teaches you to never doubt your salvation. Uh, if you've ever attended a Southern Baptist church, they, they tell you that that's all the work of the devil is to make you doubt your salvation. Okay? That only Satan would be so callous as to cause you to look within yourselves to see if it is actually Christ that is your Lord or if it is something else. 
So here's the thing. Paul wrote 13 epistles, which we're all familiar with, many of which went to entire churches. And in each one, he preaches to them the gospel, and then he addresses them concerning issues that are causing problems within the church. You remember, as Jude said, Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only and master and Lord Jesus Christ. And so Paul constantly finds himself in a battle against those who have crept in unawares. They have become members of the visible church, but their goal is not the peace and purity of the church. Their goal is not contending for the faith. Their goal is to pervert the grace of God into sensuality or works righteousness or immorality or whatever their cause might be. Just know that their cause is not the glory of God. It is their own glory. So Paul addresses within every one of these churches such things as the Judaizers who sought to meld the Jewish traditions with Christianity. There are things like circumcision and ceremonial laws and, and such and them setting these things up as being mandatory rules to follow in order to be saved. Other things in other churches like Gnosticism or Aristotelian theory or fatalism, it's all there in his letters. People leaving the faith once for all delivered to the saints in exchange for something that hinged more on themselves than on God. The Corinthian church that we are reading from was no exception, absolutely not. Paul was confronted here by divisions uh, caused by pride, by gross sexual immorality, by women's lib, by charismaticism. All of these various outright denials of God's laws being acted out for all the world to see, and not only to see, but to mock. And so what is Paul's response? Well, first off, Paul did not pass judgment on individuals other than that one guy that was blatant and unrepentantly immoral whom he directed should be cast out of the church. These people claimed to be Christians. Maybe they are. Maybe they are just confused. Or maybe they are wicked and lost and being used as tools of Satan. So Paul doesn't come out and say, hey, Joe, you're causing division. You need to stop. Hey, Will, you're prideful and you're using your pretend giftings to get people to look at you and pat you on the back. You need to stop. Beth, you're usurping your husband's role. Be quiet and learn from your husband. Nope. What was his direction to a group of people who, for all intents and purposes, were bearing no fruit of being... Go read the 
go read the letters to the Corinthians, bearing no fruit of being saved. He says, examine yourselves. Test yourselves to see if Christ is really in you. Because from where I stand, it does not appear that you know him at all. If you cannot tell, if it is not obvious that Christ is in you, it means you have failed the test. If you are saved, Jesus Christ is in you. And you would not be doing the things that you are doing. I hope you will not find out that you have failed the test. This is not new. Every writer in the New Testament faced the same things. Every writer in the New Testament gave the same warnings. The prophets in the Old Testament gave the same warnings. The warning is this. The majority of the people that you gather with week after week are most likely not even saved. Don't believe me? You go read them. False prophets, false teachers, false converts, false professions. Why is this important? Why do you never hear sermons on self-examination? Even though the majority of the New Testament is, is dedicated to exactly that. Well, it, number one, it's not good for the bottom line. Got to make people feel good about themselves to keep them coming and keep them giving. Can't have them leaving feeling broken or convicted. Even though that's the only way to bring them to repentance. Your best friend. Your best friend is the one who tells you the most truth. And your best friend is Jesus Christ. If you are in him and he is in you, Jesus Christ is your best friend. Your worst enemy is Jesus Christ. If you are not in him and he is not in you, Jesus Christ is your worst enemy. Matthew chapter 4. We're going to stay in Matthew, so if you're following along in your Bibles, just hang in there. It says, From that time Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Jesus began to preach, and he preached for the next three years, and the message did not change. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He then goes and he calls the first of his disciples uh, to come. He goes around and he does a few miracles to prove that he is who he says he is. And then we come to the Sermon on the Mount. The most famous and yet probably the most misinterpreted section of Scripture in the Bible. Now remember, Jesus is preaching Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The Sermon on the Mount, the summary of the message is repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So when we get to the Sermon on the Mount, that's what Jesus is preaching. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And he introduces us, first of all, in chapter 5, to what we will refer to as kingdom citizens. 
those who have been saved. And so basically he is telling us this is what kingdom citizens look like. If you want to summarize the entire Sermon on the Mount in one paragraph, this would be it. This is what it looks like to live out the Christian life. Examine yourself. If you don't look like this, you need to repent and believe the gospel. And so Jesus begins with the Beatitudes. Everyone knows the Beatitudes. Blessed are these. So what does that term blessed imply? Well, it means something was given to you. Okay? It does not mean that you are blessed because you already were something or because you already had something. There is none righteous, no, not one. Remember that. So here is a picture of those who are predestined, called, and chosen, and made alive in Christ. Jesus says, in essence, in chapter 5, the Beatitudes, he says, this is what kingdom citizens look like. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn over sin, the meek. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, the merciful, the pure in heart, the peacemakers, and the persecuted. Jesus says, this is what kingdom citizens look like. This is what it looks like if you are a Christian. Examine yourself. You don't look like this. Repent and believe the gospel. Ezekiel 36 and 26 paraphrased on that day on the day that you are regenerated on that day that you are made alive in Christ he says I will take out your heart of stone and I will replace it with a heart of flesh and the end result of that spiritual circumcision is that you will become pure in heart and merciful and a peacemaker all of these other things. You will do these things because you now have a heart of flesh. You are now a new creature. You are now a kingdom citizen. Examine yourself. If you do not look like this, then you are either, one, unregenerate, or two, you are woefully backslidden. This is not legalism. This is evidence. This is the fruit that Jesus says you will know them by. The fruit that comes from the vine from which you have grown out of, you cannot be saved by trying to be any of these things. Okay? You can go home and you can work yourself to death trying to be meek or trying to hunger and thirst after righteousness. You cannot be saved by doing that. I know. I tried it. Okay? This is the outworking of the Lord Jesus Christ living in you and producing the fruit that only he can produce. Examine yourselves. Test yourselves to see if Christ is in you. If you cannot tell that Christ is in you, it means you have failed the test. Then he goes on and says, you are the salt of the earth. If you are not the salt of the earth, it means that you are either unregenerate or you are backslidden. Either way, repent and believe the gospel. 
You are the light of the world. If you are not shining your light into the world, it means either that you don't have any light or you have covered it up with sin. Either way, repent and believe the gospel. Here's an important point to remember. Repentance and belief are not a one-time thing. Well, I repented and believed when I was 12. Already done that. If you're not repenting daily, then you never repented the first time. If you're not believing daily, then you never believed the first time. So, in order to keep this from being a six-hour message, we're going to skip over a few things. But suffice to say that the message does not change, okay? It's the same all the way through. Uh, this is what it looks like to live out the Christian life. So it's the same message all the way through. This is what it looks like to live out the Christian life. If you don't look like this, then you need to repent and believe the gospel. And so now justification for my declaration that there are more lost people in what calls itself the church than there are saved people, if what you've read already isn't enough. Matthew chapter 7, verses 21 through 23. Not everyone who says unto me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, Many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. So why is it important to examine yourself? Why is it that Satan has used every tool in his arsenal to prevent us from, from examining ourselves? Why? This is written to what calls itself the church. Those who claim to be God's people, adamantly claim to be God's people. He says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Notice the word Lord repeated. That's a Hebrew point of emphasis. It means that they emphatically declare themselves to be God's people. Most people in the church don't even emphatically declare themselves to be God's people. Church is just something they do out of tradition or obligation or habit. These that Jesus is referring to here are the ones that emphatically claim to be Christian. And he says, only those who do the will of my Father in heaven, the will of the Father, not the will of the political party, not my own will to which I have attached God's name in order to justify it, the will of God. What is it? What is the will of God? Well, it's always the right thing done the right way and with the right goal in mind. And the only right goal that exists is that God be glorified. There is no other right goal. 
The only right way is the way prescribed by God. There are many scriptures relevant to the will of God, but one always stands out in my mind with regards to this text. It's in Micah chapter 6 and verse 8. It says, He has told you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you, but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. That's the Lord's will for you, to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. What's the opposite of humility? Pride. Listen to what Jesus says again. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, again, emphatically Christian and proud of it, did we not prophesy in your name, cast out demons in your name, and do many mighty works in your name. That's pride. Lord, Lord, I spent my entire life bragging about all the things I was doing for the kingdom. Look how worthy I am. We touched on this in Sunday school, about meeting that person who introduces themselves with a list of all their accomplishments for the kingdom. Those people are lost. Just this week, I don't know how many of you are following it, just this week, Rick Warren, who has led untold millions astray, put out, a, put out his list of all of his accomplishments. Go look it up. If you are a Christian, it will make you gag. Now, it's easy, it's real easy to pick out charlatans like Rick Warren and Joel Osteen and Beth Moore and all of those people. The ones that have made millions upon millions of dollars selling a made-up version of Jesus to the masses that love the made-up version of Jesus, they prophesy in Jesus' name. They cast out demons as a show in Jesus' name. Do many mighty works in Jesus' name. Only problem was it wasn't done for the glory of God. It was done for their own glory and for their bottom line. Well, Captain Obvious, so what? What about the average church member? It's the same thing, just a little less lucrative in terms of money and esteem. It is anything and everything that the person does in the name of Jesus, but in actuality it is not done for the glory of God, but either for their own glory or in order to attain salvation. Both are a denial of God, and they are a denial of the gospel of Jesus Christ. These many, many that Jesus is referring to, are using their good deeds as justification to demand that Jesus let them into heaven. What is the response of the true Christian when they come face to face with the sovereign God of the universe? Remember what Isaiah said? Lord, I am undone. I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. 
For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Jesus' response to the many. I'm going to find out how many here in a minute. His response is, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Anything not done for the glory of God is lawlessness. Anything done for your own glory is lawlessness. It is vile and it is wicked. Kingdom citizens know how worthless they are apart from Christ. Kingdom citizens know that they have nothing to boast about. Examine yourself. If what you are doing in the name of God is not for God's glory, then you are either lost or you are woefully backslidden. Now here comes the evidence. Matthew chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. Wish I had another hour or five. Two gates. You're all familiar with this story, but I dare to say that most don't know the truth of it. Scriptures of knowing private interpretation. The American church interpretation to justify its apostasy is this. Okay? So there's a lot of doctrines out there that people have had to make up in order to justify the majority of what calls itself the church being apostatized. Their interpretation is this. He says, over here you have a narrow gate which is Jesus Christ. Other places he is referred to as a door. Okay, he is the way. The only way to heaven. Amen? Everybody says that, all right? And so the American version of this says that through the gate are all the professed Christians. Those who have said, I believe that Jesus is the, is the Son of God. Okay? In America, that's all it takes to be a Christian. But on the other hand, there is this big wide gate, and going through that gate are all those folks from Hollywood, all the ones from that other political party, all those other religions out there, the atheists and what have you, they're all headed for destruction. They're all headed for hell. So the cultural Christian interpretation of the text is, all of us in here, are going through the narrow gate into eternal life. All those sinners out there are going through the wide gate to destruction. But what's the true interpretation? Jesus says there are two gates. There are also two ways. This is written to those who profess to be Christians. Remember it says those who say, Lord, Lord, those who do not profess to be Christians have already been judged. John three eighteen and 19. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. 
And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and the people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. Unbelievers have already been judged. Unbelievers have already been condemned because of their unbelief. They refuse to believe in the name of the only Son of God. So Jesus is here addressing all of those who profess to believe in the only Son of God. He's not even talking about the world. So back to it. We have a narrow gate. The actual word for this is not narrow. It is a word used as compressed or hard. And it is the word very often used in Scripture for persecution. So these are entering a gate and a way that is filled with persecution. Few there be that find it. The ones predestined and called and chosen and justified and changed by the power of God and the Spirit of God. These are the ones who are going through the narrow gate. These are the kingdom citizens on their way to eternal life, made alive in Christ. New creatures taking up their cross daily and following Christ. Not out of legalism, not motivated by self-preservation, but out of a changed heart. Their heart of stone has been replaced with a heart of flesh, and they now love the things God loves, and they hate the things that God hates. And their style of life is one of always striving to bring glory to God. And because of that, their lives are going to be filled with persecution. If you are not being persecuted, it's probably because the people don't find you offensive. might be because you're just like them. These people are the meek. These people are the poor in spirit. These people are the peacemakers, the ones hungering and thirsting after righteousness, the ones mourning over their sin the ones being persecuted for their faith and their refusal to compromise that faith, the ones that refuse to conform to the world, you shall know them by their fruit. These are the ones who are consistently examining themselves to see if Christ is truly in them, to see if Christ is truly the Lord of their life or if something else is the Lord of their life. They are going through the gate into eternal life. And over that gate is a sign that says, to heaven. And now over on the other side, we have a wide gate and a broad way, an easy path, many companions. There is no need to alter your lifestyle. There is no danger of persecution. They love the Jesus that they've made up in their own minds. Their God is love. He has a wonderful plan for my life. He's going to help me as I build my kingdom here on this earth. These are the proud, the strong, the arrogant, seeking their own way, seeking the praise of men rather than God. 
the ones constantly stirring up division and dissension within the church. There is no humility within them, no hunger and thirst for righteousness, consistently forsaking the gathering of themselves together, not seeking the peace and the purity of the church, little or no concern about whether God is glorified in their words or actions as long as they get their way. These are also the ones that tuned me out this morning as soon as I said, examine yourself. They're already convinced of their own righteousness because they emphatically announce to all that they meet their list of accomplishments for the kingdom. They are emphatically Christian, and they know it, and they're proud of it. For it's the ones that come to church regularly because it's the right thing to do. But God has no say-so or authority over the rest of their lives. They are all, the many, going through that wide gate, headed for hell, and they don't even know it. Because there is a sign over that gate, and that sign says, To heaven. There are, many, there are more lost people in what calls itself the church than there are saved people. Many are headed for destruction, but only a few are headed for eternal life. Examine yourself to see if Christ is in you. If he is not, then you are on your way to destruction. So why is this important? Why is this message important? Why is there every likelihood that there are more lost people in this church right here than there are saved people. Cultural Christians bending to every whim of the world, consumerist Christians that come and sit, see the show, and go home, never to consider it again until next week. Why is this important? Well, number one, because this nation is under judgment. God has given it over to a reprobate mind. Persecution is coming. We are soon to be like all the other countries have been for centuries. Persecution is coming. A famine is coming. If you can't see that, you're not paying attention. A famine for food and a famine for the word of God. What calls itself the church in America thinks it can stop this stuff through politics. When in actuality it is the church choosing politics over repentance that's brought this judgment down. So why is this important? The time is coming when both spiritual, spiritual and physical survival is going to be a group effort. Remember Acts chapter 2? When it said they had all things common. You know why they had all things common? Because they needed each other to survive. Examine yourself. Because you need to know where you stand when they kick the doors in. Or when there is no food on the store shelves. Examine yourselves. God is cleansing his son's bride. 
The tares are being weeded out, one denomination after another, falling into apostasy. And the pretend Christians are leaving in droves. There were untold hundreds of thousands that left during the pandemic when the churches shut down. The pretend Christians are leaving in droves rather than put up with the quarreling and the drama. Southern Baptist Convention this week just signed its own death warrant. And then they stood Rick Warren in the pulpit to brag about it. The liberals have taken charge. And the reason that they were given charge, now get this, they were given charge, all right, by God, is because the conservative side did more preaching of politics than they did of repentance. God will not share his glory with anyone. And the worldly system you seek will be the one that God gives you, and he will watch as it destroys you. Why is this important? There is a division among us as a church here. There are harsh and angry words being spoken about and to the ones that you should call your brother and sister. Examine yourself. If any man does not love his brother, the love of God is not in him. Are your words and actions bringing glory to God and peace and purity to the church, or are they spreading hatred and division through pride and self-righteousness? Examine yourself. If there's any wicked way and you repent, why is this important? Remember the words of David. He says, if I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear my prayers. We can pray without ceasing. But until the anger and the bitterness and the division are repented of, the Lord is not listening. We're on our own. And on our own is not a good place to be. I've been there. Jesus Christ wrote letters to seven churches in Asia, some of which had their candlesticks removed. That means they were no longer considered by God to be a church. The summation of every letter in Revelation was, in essence, examine yourself to see if Christ is in you. If he is not, then I will come against you. Stuff that is coming is going to require a strong pastor to handle. One that is not afraid to rightly divide the word of truth, though it may cost him dearly. One that is not afraid to come come to your home and tell you that you need to get a handle on your child because they appear to be lost. One that is not afraid to tell you that you are causing division and harming the peace and purity of the church and you need to stop. And what that pastor is going to need to be successful is a congregation that is seeking the glory of God in every act and in every decision. If that is not you, examine yourself and repent. And if that is not the type of man you are praying for to pastor this church, please stop. Finally, I'm going to close with this. Why is it important to examine ourselves? What are we looking for? And why is it so important whether or not Christ is in you? Well, it's the difference between eternal life and eternal judgment. 
Romans chapter 8, verses 7 through 11. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who dwells in you. Let's pray. Lord, thank you again for your word. Holy Spirit, attend your word. Lord, do a work. Bring us to repentance. Lord, purify us as we pray for revival in our nation. Let us begin with praying for revival in our own hearts. Let us begin with praying for revival in our own church. Then and only then will it spread to the rest of the nation. These things I ask in Christ's name. Amen.